You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. What a great time to be back with you. I know many of you are fresh off of either the March for Life in Washington, D.C., the Walk for Life in San Francisco, or other marches and walks across the nation that were recognizing the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, remembering the babies who have been lost through abortion, remembering the women and men whose lives have been harmed, and praying for a conversion and end to the slaughtering of children and the destruction of the souls of those women, of the mothers, who go through the pain and carry the burden of abortion. So we'll we'll be talking about that walk or those marches that took place across the nation. We know hundreds of thousands of people from all over the country were walking. And if you were out, please send us a message. Let us know where you were at. Maybe if there were any neat stories that took place, you can head over to radiotrending.com and share with us about your personal experience. Joining me today is Father Tim Grumbach of St. Augustine Parish in Los Angeles. And he is always a regular here on the show, ready to give many insights and stories into what we'll be discussing today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be back. I feel like it's been a while. This is the first time back in the new year. So just excited to see what this new year has in store. I know God's going to be calling even more and more of us to that that witness to life, and he's going to be doing something new this year. So let's get at it. We'll be talking a little later on in the show about some warnings from exorcists uh, regarding media that we're consuming. And I know this is something that Father Tim and I actually talked a lot about. In fact, I remember we were talking about witches about two years ago, and we had witches on our YouTube feed, like doing whatever you want to call it. I mean, the reality is, is that witches, witchcraft, uh, the demonic presence is on the rise in terms of its prevalence and culture. And so the church actually has something to say about that. But first, I want to dive into this story uh, that is near and dear, I think, to so many of the hearts, especially for those people who are from the L.A. and Southern California area. And that is for Lakers fans. Kobe Bryant died in a tragic helicopter accident this weekend, one of which we don't know fully all the details yet, uh, which will be coming out probably over the next 10 days. But both he and eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, died. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. It really challenges our hearts and makes us wonder about you know, who is it that we're lifting up in our lives and how does something like this affect us and why does it affect us? Yeah. I remember I was celebrating the 11 o'clock mass at St. Augustine and as I was coming back through the pews and you know just to meet and greet with parishioners, they were kind of looking at their phones and they had this really bizarre news to me and mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant just died. I'm like, well, this has got to be some kind of mistake. And... Um, I've, so I've been thinking a lot the last couple of days is why was this man so important to so many people's lives? And I think it was more than just basketball, more than just sports. Part of it was this was somebody that we, in a way, welcomed into our homes every time there was a Laker game on. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you, you liked him or you, you hated him, saw him as nothing more than a rival or saw him as a great hero for your sports team. He was something that uh, someone that we welcomed into our homes and either cheered or booed. And it went beyond sports because there was also a great struggle in his personal life that was made very public. 
back in about 2003 when he was accused of sexual assault. And a lot of people are still upset about that because it didn't seem that there was very much uh, public repentance or admission of of wrong or um, public seeking of healing. Well, and it was interesting Uh on that note because I hadn't really followed the story later on. I just remember, you know, when it came out early 2000s that uh, there was an accusation of rape against him. And, you know, I think that for some people who maybe aren't fans of the Lakers as such, maybe aren't watching the games regularly, they do remember, okay, he plays for the Lakers. And wasn't he accused of rape? And that's some of what people remember. So when a bunch of Catholics are suddenly talking about this Mm -hmm. guy, a lot of people are wondering what's going on. Right. I remember when he was, you know, that season when all of that was coming out and he would go back and the Lakers would be playing the Denver Nuggets in Denver, how loud the boos were. And you could tell this is this right. goes beyond sports. Right. This is something where someone's private life and their great mistakes and the terrible decisions that they may or may not have made, you know, beyond it being such a terrible thing as an accusation of sexual assault, it was also marital infidelity. Mm-hmm. And so for this young man, he came right out of high school into the NBA. And so to be in that kind of spotlight at a very formative time in a young man's age, that is something that can affect one's personal life, where the two become almost inseparable, as we expect to know everything about these celebrities, these heroes of ours. And when something that negative comes out, that ugly begins to come out, we take it very personal. And so... Because a lot of people grew up with him. I mean, I grew up with his games being played in my house. And I think that's something about this story that stands out to us. You know, sports is a language that we all speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you were saying, you know, he came into our homes. The family is a language that we all speak. You know, the death of a family member. And also death is a language that we all speak. And so I think the response to this story has been really interesting. And, you know, a couple pieces of information. Because some people say, you know, why are you talking about him in this story? For those who don't know, and I did not know this, he and his wife had actually reconciled after the public accusation of rape. In fact, immediately when the accusation came out, he denied that he had raped the woman in Denver, but he did affirm publicly uh, that he had had an affair. And he and his wife, Vanessa, who had actually been married in the Catholic Church, Kobe Bryant grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. knew Italian, grew up in Italy for number of years. Uh, He was Catholic. They were raising their family Catholic. And so it was interesting because uh, we'll get to the marriage part a little bit more later, but he said what brought him out of this, the turning point in his own words to GQ magazine a number of years ago was actually when he spoke to a Catholic priest about this. Yeah, and that's where it becomes, you know, private repentance is such an important thing in our in our church. And though we kind of expected Kobe to do something a little more public, but we know in our own sacrament of confession that when we're encountering Christ in that very private space, that it's repentance is a, it can be a tricky thing and a complicated thing yeah. that happens within that that sacred space. And so we we still have these celebrity expectations, but to know that it was his Catholic faith that not only got him out of something, but transformed him mm-hmm. during that time. And so you know we as humans may look at our celebrities and say, either we're going to completely forgive them and ask and act as if nothing ever even happened, or we can hold it against them and say, I will never trust him again. But we know that God's mercy is almost unfair. It's somewhat, it's not somewhere in between those two things, but it's beyond both of them. And this really struck me, especially yesterday when the gospel reading in the daily mass was Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what the church has reflected on about that is that it's not so much about saying certain words about the Holy Spirit, but it's about 
Um, the unforgivable sin is the sin that we refuse to ask forgiveness for. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know what happened in Kobe's heart from that time in his life that became very public, what kind of private repentance happened in his heart. Right. You know, even, you know, we almost have this expectation to know what happened in his private life with his wife, but we have no right to that information. And so it's really uh, something that has been striking hearts all throughout Los Angeles, all throughout the world, really, is this almost kind of polemic figure uh, in Kobe Bryant of this celebrity that we welcomed into our homes who did something that may have been truly terrible, but what is his experience of the divine mercy and do we have a right to um, access right. that his experience of the divine mercy? That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. You know, what I think stands out about this story and why so many people are also clinging on to it is that it's obvious whether he raped the woman or he only had an affair. And I don't say only having right. an affair and, and saying that that's any better, but Either way, I think what people are recognizing is that this man made a major mistake. Mm -hmm. He's a sinner. And I think there's something that each of us can really identify with. But at the same time, there's something that a lot of people are really loving. And I think the message is a message of hope in the sense that although this affair took place back in 2003, uh, he and his wife were able to kind of work through it. And until about 2011, stayed together until they filed for divorce. And then it ended up coming out about two years later in 2013 that they had reconciled. They've had four children, a beautiful family. And it looks like they've really been able to pull things together. And I think that this is kind of a Catholic perspective I take on this. This is the grace of the sacrament of matrimony. The two of them, both Catholic, raised Catholic, you know, ended up at being married in the Catholic Church, were able to persevere in their marriage, even in the worst of worst circumstances. And I think that we have to come back to that reminder that when we have a good foundation in our life, when you raise your children Catholic, when you know what is right, when you surround yourself with the sacraments, even when you make the worst of the worst mistakes, hopefully you'll know where to go. And, you know, maybe that's a message to people who are listening, whose kids maybe have fallen away from the church. We have we all have family and friends. Maybe that's a message that they will always know where to go in the midst of their darkness and misery. Do they know that? Are you reminding them of that? And so I find the story of Kobe Bryant over the last few days to be almost more intriguing because of his Catholicism, um, quiet as it may have been, humble as it may have been. And even though we wanted to see it more publicly, I'm almost more drawn to that than I ever was by his basketball. And I grew up a huge Lakers fan. This was all I ever wanted to watch at night was the Lakers win. And, and then to watch it on SportsCenter again the next morning. It was always the first highlights because it was always the biggest story. But I'm so much more drawn to Kobe's story right now because it's the story of somebody who was just as much desperately in need of divine mercy as anybody else. Mm -hmm. And the news is coming out, and I, I think it's confirmed also by the community down at the, the parish in Newport Beach here in the Diocese of Orange, that he was at Mass with his daughter Gianna that morning. Yeah, uh, just the, a couple yeah. hours before the crash. Yeah, so, um, you know, and this isn't a matter of, yeah, see, Kobe was on our team, the Catholic team. But no, it's a story of a redemption that we don't really have access to. So we just continue to pray and fast for the repose of his soul and of his daughter and for the consolation of his family. And neat little pieces as well. We hear that, you know, he would go to a daily mass occasionally. Would they be surprised to see this tall man next to him in the church? So it's a reminder for us to hold fast to our Catholic faith. 
Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. We are back. I am just off of a crazy weekend at the Walk for Life. I have to tell you guys, I'm getting too old for this. I took a 24-hour turnaround trip and got a couple hours of sleep on the bus up there, a couple hours on the way back. Um, It was incredible, though, to be there and to see the numbers of people. I mean, they had hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people at the March for Life. Uh, I'm sure that they had probably close to 100,000 again at the San Francisco Walk. And one of the things that really stood out to me, and I have to ask this question, and I feel like maybe this is National Awareness Week month for abortion, but sometimes we forget about it. Sometimes we show up to that walk or maybe we can't go. So we say some extra prayers, go to an extra mass, post a couple extra articles. And the rest of the year after that month, we kind of dwindle off in terms of talking about abortion. We become numb. And maybe even apathetic. And so Father Tim, and that's Father Tim Grumbach here in studio with me from St. Augustine Parish in Los Angeles. Father Tim, it reminded me in a sense of my own story. And I know you can kind of see this, you know, back in your days, surfing, kind mm-hmm. of juxtaposed the two lifestyles you may right. have lived. And it made me think when I was at the Walk for Life I was up in front filming. I did a live feed. And at the same time as all the speakers were up for the rally, just to the right side of the stage was a huge promotion for the San Francisco Ballet Company and their upcoming season of all the ballets that they'll be performing. Now, my very first time at the Walk for Life back in the early 2000s, I think this was the 17th walk, so about 17 years ago, I remember I was going to the Walk for Life with my mom. We'd flown up to San Francisco. And then immediately after, I was going to with the San Francisco Ballet Company for their summer program. And that summer, I ended up dancing with the Russian Ballet Company, the Kirov, in the summer. But I remember just the inspiration I experienced being at that walk of all of the young people who were there, all the people who were advocates for life. I remember the surprise. That was the first year where we had the most protesters, I would say, at the walk for life. And there was such a clear battle between good and evil. I remember they had more police that year than any other year at the walk. There was basically a row, like a living body of people making a wall between the pro-life and pro-abortion sides of the walk the whole time. And there was this visceral hatred from the pro-abortion movement. And there was this peace and even a culture of honor and respect coming from the pro-life people who We're looking at those who probably have experienced abortion, um, whatever hatred and abuse they may have experienced in their life. And I remember even for the police, they were so shocked that our side wasn't going to step over that line. But they were afraid the whole time that the tension was obviously so clear in there. And so, you know, looking back at that stage, I look at, you know, I could have gone and danced, danced professionally, or I could have been doing what I'm doing. And how all of us sometimes have that choice. It might not be as big of an extreme choice between, you know, working the pro-life movement, working for the church and dancing with a ballet company. But it might be something as extreme as you're in a circumstance where someone's talking about abortion they're talking about having an abortion and they're a complete stranger and you can even either choose yourself in that moment or you can choose to speak up in that moment and I think that that was part of what really stood out to me being at 
the walk this weekend. Right. And looking at our past and knowing the opportunities that we would have had, I remember, you know, in my own surfing days of of being in that beach culture and seeing a lot of people who didn't really have a way out of it mm -hmm. and knowing that the, the surfing life can become something where, you know, just to use the, the analogy and the image of surfing is you want to stay on the surface. You don't want to go underneath. And so it's a lot easier to spend time at the beach and not worry about what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, but always feeling that call to pro-life is something that, that's going to have to happen in drastic ways. And it is going to transform me to become someone who is pro-life, to walk with those who don't know the gift of life. And so you know, I'll go back out into the water from time to time and encounter the same people that I spent all that time with. And they'll have questions for me. Maybe I don't have the answers to all of them, but that they're asking the questions. It's a beautiful thing to see that. And so, you know, people are drawn to the pro-life witness. And how are we going to respond to that? Even if they come at us uh, in a somewhat violent way, how are we going to respond with that? Our, our witness is of life, which means life comes from the God of love. How are we going to respond to that? And some people maybe respond somewhat violently in turn, but what a gift that you have seen in these walks that those with the pro-life witness have been responding with a certain peacefulness because, you know, even in the battle of good versus evil, when it is expressed in the demonic is that when we are truly on the side of God, uh, truly with the peace of God, we can be in the face of the demonic and know that it's fighting a losing battle and that will give us a certain peace. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. You know, I keep thinking about this where you're talking, Father Tim, about, you know, you could either stay on the surface or you can go deep. You know, are we maybe going into whatever culture that might be for us, whatever, you know, side thing? Not that it's necessarily a distraction, but are we reverting back to something so that we can be in our ignorant bliss of what's going on in the world and the reality of the world? And I think sometimes this is a tendency even of the Catholic community or of individuals when they go through a conversion uh, to separate themselves from the pack. And there is this level of separation that has to happen, but it's a separation of holiness, of being set apart for God. You're your portion, all that you are is meant to be given to God, but you're not supposed to um, completely take yourself out of what's going on in the culture. We're called to go back in. And it makes me think of the resurrection narrative right after Jesus rises. What happens? The apostles or sorry, he hasn't even risen yet. I think he's risen. They knew he's risen. Uh, you know, we have the journey. My brain is the road to Emmaus. Road to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? They go fishing with Peter and oh. they all follow Peter. And, you know, it's interesting because Jesus shows up and he's kind of looking at him like, why are you fishing? You know, why are you going back? Like I told you, you were going to be fishers of men. You're just going back to your old way. I've died for you. And you're just kind of trying to escape from the world. How do we ourselves do that? Instead of battling this culture of life versus death, as St. John Paul the Great has talked about, you know, we are in a battle and we're called to bring that culture of life and light back into our community. And it's going to happen by God building on our nature with his grace, right? Mm -hmm. uh, today, the feast day of St. Thomas Aquinas, and one of his greatest saying was, is that, uh, that grace builds on nature. And so God doesn't desire to just obliterate everything about who we are and start over, but he desires to transform and recreate. I've been thinking so much about this. You know, Jesus doesn't destroy anything but sin. Everything else he transforms. 
And so how do we take this pro-life witness onto our shoulders? Do we think it's something that it's all about our effort? It's all about the effort that we put into it. Well, otherwise, you know, when we start to fail or we come across some roadblock, it will become something so heavy on us that it'll crush us. If we decide to give up, please don't give up. Then we'll seek out other ways, other distractions to fill that gap of failure, supposed failure. But finally, if we just let it become something that finds its source in prayer, that it is completely God, that you know, nothing if not you, Lord, are the great words of St. Thomas Aquinas, that then God will transform this movement. So it, God needs to be at the center of this movement. You know, praise God for all of the people who are not religious, but still see that there's a need for a pro-life witness in the world. But I'm convinced more and more each day and convicted by it that we can't love people unless we first love God. There'll be certain affection we might have for people and a certain you know fairness that we might see in order to be just to people. But to truly love people and to truly love life, God has to be at the center of it. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I want to hear from you. First of all, I have this question. What are you going to do this year? What gifts do you have to further dive into this culture of life and bring the light of Christ into our culture? But I want to hear from you, and that is what ways have you maybe been involved? How have you maybe been creative in getting involved in pro-life work? What are some of the tough questions that you are facing that you feel like you can't quite get over either in your own pro-life position or maybe with close people you've slowly been working on to help bring them into that pro-life position? Because you guys, it doesn't always just happen like that. I do see where people have a massive conversion to the pro-life position, but then they need to continue to be fed. Or maybe they're having that conversion. It's there, but they're still spewing the same ideas they've had because they don't know how to work through them to complete that change of heart within themselves. Now, I want to touch on another point having to do with the walk. And that is, you know, it was interesting because we had this historic moment this year at the March for Life, 47 years of legalized abortion through Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, actually making it federal law that through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy, she can have an abortion. And then here we are for the first time in history where the president of the United States actually came and addressed and attended the March for Life. And I think that that is really a testament to all of the pro-life voices who have been begging politicians to wake up to the evil of abortion, showing that someone who we might radically disagree with on various things can come around and agree with us and actually advocate for unborn children and women. Yeah, and I know that it came to a lot of mixed responses, right. but looking at the actual text of what uh, President Trump offered to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., you see these one-liners like the sanctity of life. You see it about you know, life brings with it love that every life can bring love into the world. And you know, a lot of people have a tough time, you know, honestly trusting his words about that. But if we were to take his name off of that and see those words, we'd say, that's the truth though. That's mm-hmm. what we're teaching. And so it's really important for everybody to hear these words. And as with any kind of evangelization efforts, we need to put the words out there and trust that the Holy Spirit will let them be heard the way that a person needs to hear them. So it's, it's difficult to have that kind of obedience to God's movement in the world, but let's hope that the people, everybody, whatever side of the political spectrum one may find oneself, that they can hear those words, see those words, and trust that the truth will 
find its way into hearts. And if we're not speaking up, who is? You know, we saw mainstream media covering Planned Parenthood CEO is looking at 2020. And guess where she's at? She's at the World Economic Forum promoting abortion in business. So we need to be out there speaking up, speaking of the culture of life. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. And Father Tim Grumbach is in studio with me. If you guys haven't heard episodes with Father Tim before, we cover so many issues. And one of the issues we have talked quite a bit about in the past has actually been the demonic witchcraft possession battling, kind of the influence of the demonic. So you can head over to radiotrending.com, head over to the guest page. And there are tons of episodes where Father Tim Grumbach and I are speaking specifically to these issues. In fact, I mentioned it earlier in the show. I remember there was one year, I think it was Halloween a couple years ago. And literally the witches were, um, we were basically trending in the witching community because they were so upset that we were exposing just the horror of what they're advocating for. And I've got to say, Father Tim, you know, I started to kind of pick on this story that we were going to discuss this week for trending. It was sent to me by one of my interns, Ella. And then I started diving a little deeper into it. There is an article about this new show. It's called The Owl House by Disney. And it's just starting to air. In fact, they've already been renewed for a second season. But the Owl House actually has a story setting all around this little girl who's friends with a witch, essentially. And it was interesting to dive into the behind the scenes of what the creator, Dana Terrace, had to say about this film or about the series. Yeah, diving more deeply into what she had to say, even though it's a bunch of these little one-liners coming from this Newsweek uh, article, it really is striking how disturbing the words are when you understand them within the context of the demonic and of witchcraft. Uh, Just one of the first things I saw was, she says, I wanted to create my own thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the most dangerous things about the demonic and, and witchcraft is it's not about creating. Our God is the creator God. And all that something like witchcraft can do, tapping into certain powers, all that the demonic can do is merely counterfeit what God has created. And so it's really a terrifying thing when people begin to think that they are creating something, even though she is speaking about this this cartoon, she wants to express herself artistically and, and create something, but that the demonic can begin to use that language of creation finds its way into this desire to create even cartoons. It's really a frightening thing. Well, and it is really scary when you look at her story. She actually grew up going to Catholic school and she was quite taken by some of the religious artwork, but she was taken by religious artwork that really depicted kind of the end times, judgment that depicted, you know, much of the evil spirits and hell and juxtaposing that against um, the good. And these photos that are very dark mm-hmm. and, you know, we're in religious settings were to help remind us that there is death, there is judgment. And it's a reminder for us as Catholics that death is an encounter with Christ. And that's what we need to be orienting ourselves to. But instead, I feel like shows such as The Owl House, which in fact, you guys, is a kid's show, uh, is causing us to meditate on a culture of death rather than that culture of life we've been talking about. She talks about how she wanted to create a cool show in that art style. But when she looks at the art, she looks at the darkness. And she talks about how she was pushing for darker things because she finds it fun and how even, you know, she wasn't really going to ask permission of Disney if she 
did something, if she went too far, she would apologize. But she was pushing them to continue to go darker. And apparently it came out in conversation with her main artist. I believe it's Ricky Canetta. He ends up saying that in his first conversation with Terrace, that she was saying, quote, we're trying to make this demon realm a part of Disney. Yeah, they even said they wanted to make the demon realm feel like home. Mm -hmm. And again, there's more of that that twisted counterfeit language of God the creator. You know, one of my favorite lines about um, creating a home is that we we build the house, God creates the home. And so to think that we could make the demonic feel like home, well, there's so much to say about the demonic, about its twisted counterfeit of the family. You know, you have all these hierarchies of the demons uh, eventually leading up to Satan himself. And... While in the heavenly realms, the, the hierarchy of the angels is all about praising God and building this home in, uh, in heaven, the demonic realm is all about uh, competition and destroying one's not only enemies, but allies. We, we can't begin to think that the, the demons are looking for each other's success. They're fighting over one another for souls. And what a terrible image to try and make the demon realm feel like home. That's a complete misunderstanding of the difference between the angelic and the demonic, this idea that we could make hell our home. I mean, that's what Satan wants for us, but he doesn't want brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. He wants slaves. And this may seem that we're being a bit prudish or overreacting to what a cartoon can do, but to listen to some of the language from these creators, even Dana Terrace was saying that, you know, I was exercising some demons by working from them, the artists. And so what are the demons she's exercising? Is that her experience of Catholic school? And she was going back to this, this frightening art, one of the artists of whom was considered very heretical and that his art came out of that space rather than from a place of love and glory of God. So it's a pretty frightening thing to see the way that they're using language to talk about home, to talk about creativity. And it goes deeper and deeper in this this article. This is the, probably the creepiest point for me. And if you're just joining us, that's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Tim Rain. If you have thoughts on this, I would love to hear what you have to say, because I do have a question. And we're going we're gonna to come back to the shocking point in a second. But my question is, have we maybe, and I'm just throwing this out there, I'm asking this question. Have we maybe made a mistake in allowing so much of our entertainment to cross over too much into the realm of witchcraft? Because I get it. I get where we can say, you know what, there is a blatant and clear good versus evil and a lot of stories that touch on magic, let's say, not even witchcraft, but magic. Uh, But at the same time, at what point have we maybe become a little numb? Because I think that this show blatantly has gone too far. And if you're not convinced yet, Listen to this. Newsweek writes that if you go into the writer's room, that it is literally full of books on witchcraft, witches, and spells, and it's all part of their inspiration of what they're pulling from. You guys, if there's a full room, the writer's room, if they're looking at imagery from this realm, they're looking at witchcraft, actual spells. I mean, it suddenly made me think for a second. I know you and I were texting last night and talking about this story. Well, what other stories that we kind of begin to say, well, this is a clear story of good versus evil. How much are they looking into the realm of the demonic, into the realm of spells and witchcraft? How much are they actually looking into that for inspiration as well? Yeah, it was suggested um, as well for Harry Potter 
that a, a lot that of that one gets yeah. really sensitive right, response. Right. Yes, yeah. so, <laughs> some will say that that a lot of that inspiration came from like actual witching classes and whatnot. I think that's been somewhat debunked, and most of the spells you'll find in in Harry Potter are you know just Latin phrases that mean literally to make something rise or or literally to disarm somebody. Right. And so it's a little less dangerous. It, it does right get, make the witchcraft something that is entertainment. It yeah. it familiarizes us with with something, but in the wrong way. And all of us can always take something mm-hmm. too far. And I think yeah. that's important to remember because yeah. there were cases where people really criticized Harry Potter. And I think in a sense, justifiably so with how people have used things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we're talking about this, Father Tim, you bring it up as part of maybe this desensitization that we've allowed. Yeah, yeah. And it goes even further into that. And it begins to take up this demonic creed. Like you said, uh, Dana Terrace was saying that, you know, she would do whatever she wanted and then Disney would have to reel her in. And that was her perspective. And... This is convicting me more and more that I don't know if there's a more demonic saying or mindset in our world than it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, you know, because that throws obedience out the door. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she even says, you know, it's it's the demon world so we can do whatever we want. Um, that 70% of it was made up, the rest of it came from these sources. 30% is still a lot of witchcraft to pull into your your kids show. I just do what I want and let Disney tell me if I'm going too far. It's this, it's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And uh, it's, again, I'm going to keep using that word frightening because um, to let that kind of mindset, that kind of uh, worldview into a cartoon for children and to give them the sense that it's easier to ask uh, forgiveness than permission. And um, it, 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 that is something that can mortally damage our relationship with the loving God who asks obedience of us, not as uh, a master asks of slaves, but as a, a father asks of his beloved children, because he's not inviting us into slavery, but in, into sonship and, and, uh, and, and daughtership in order to receive his love, nurture it within us, and then bear it out to the world. But to try to, you know, begin teaching children through entertainment that it's it's all about um, what they want to do and if it's too far then somebody will tell you that's that's not a very good relationship of holy obedience that's father tim grumbach you are listening to trending with tim ray we want to hear from you what are your thoughts on this story head over to radiotrending.com head to the contact page and just send us a message we would love to get your perspective or experience on some of these issues you can also subscribe there to the podcast so that you don't miss a single episode you're not always in the car at the right time. We get it. Take trending with you on the road. Father Tim, you know, one of the things that stood out in Dana Terrace's comment was how much, quote, fun the mm. darker stuff is. And this is where I think, okay, so it's supposed to be entertainment. It's supposed to be fun. And in fact, we've turned some of this into a game. And an example of this is actually a group of exorcists. In fact, the International Association of Exorcists have recently come out speaking against a book. It's titled A Children's Book of Demons. And basically what's in it is how to draw uh, the things, I think they're called sigils, mm-hmm. uh, in order to summon evil spirits and to summon these demons. And it was so shocking because they even have coloring book pages inside the book for the kids to draw this. And so one of the things that the exorcist was talking about is, again, it's not a game. Um, We are allowing the occult to become a game for children, though. And a couple of things they said 
and this is from the exorcist's mouth i'm paraphrasing i'll post some of the articles to these because you guys need to read it for yourselves yeah i'm not sitting here going like on the extreme here you need to see this some of the quotes the exorcists were talking about how these are things we don't need to mess around with and in fact we don't need to give essentially what is a grenade to a child because eventually the child is going to pull the switch on that grenade. Yeah, and honestly, in the seminary, we did not get very much training on the demonic and the angelic and that kind of spiritual warfare. But it is something we learn in the trenches in the parishes. But one of the moments that we had in the seminary was to watch the exorcist together and to discuss it afterwards. So when the demonic becomes a game, the demons don't play with us, even though we think we're playing with them. They take it far more seriously than we do. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. If you've been listening, you really do see how intense the spiritual warfare is. Whether we're talking about abortion, whether we're talking about the soul, such as the soul and kind of the own temptation in his own life that Colby Bryant faced, uh, whether we're talking about this witchcraft in this new book where the inspiration for the book is really trying to lead kids to know how to draw the symbols to invoke evil demons. Or whether it's, you know, this Newsweek story talking about the show The Owl and how they pull their inspiration. They have a whole room for the writers and the artistic directors of witchcraft and spell books and the demonic. I mean, this is making it blatantly clear that we are in a battle for souls. We're going to talk about that in just a second with Father Tim Grumbach. First, a message about our sponsors. Solidarity HealthShare is simple to help pay for affordable, quality health care. They enable the community to share in each other's eligible medical expenses. You choose the doctors that you want to see. Even integrative and alternative medical treatments are eligible. Solidarity HealthShare helps pay for NAPRO technology and costs associated with natural family planning. Solidarity HealthShare is dedicated to both faith and your health care. Information is available at SolidarityHealthShare.org. Again, that's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Father Tim, you and I have both been reading this book, The Bible and the Liturgy by Jean Donalou, an incredible book. In the first couple chapters, it's talking about really um, the symbolism and the mystery behind the sacrament of baptism. And one of the things that really struck me as we've been reading this is the battle between Satan and Christ for the soul of that catechumen who's about to be baptized. Yes, and I love the symbolism and the signs because it's so much more than what we think of when we hear symbol, is that two things that are unrelated but have some kind of image of relationship, but that we as Catholics believe that a symbol actually draws us into the reality, that it points towards. And so we especially believe that in the Eucharist, it's not just a symbol, not just a symbol, but it's a real symbol that draws us into the reality of the body and blood of Christ. And what we're looking at here is baptism as drawing us into the reality of the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, that comes right out of Romans chapter six. I remember being on an airplane one time and uh, coming back from Haiti, actually having done a little bit of mission work there. And uh, a a Protestant sat down right next to me and and knew that we were Catholics flying back. And he asked me, you know, that that quintessential question that an evangelical will ask a Catholic when they're sitting on an airplane is, you know, how do you know that you're saved? 
And I said, well, let's look at Romans six and see the way that my baptism has brought me into the death and the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, so we went back and forth for a little bit, but eventually our conversation was beautiful because it was all about the work that we were doing in different places in Haiti, because we've been drawn into this story that never ended. Jesus died, was placed in the tomb, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. And that's not the, like the end of the story. And it's somehow relevant to our lives, but it is something that our lives are relevant to that gospel is that we are drawn into it and we're done so in baptism. And so this book is really opening up these beautiful images that the, the symbols and the signs of baptism are real symbols and signs that they draw us into the story that is the passion, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And I've been receiving some messages lately about redemption, salvation, and talking about this, and a lot of people who are not Catholic asking questions. And I think one of the things we have to talk about that's so important is we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He saves. God alone saves. But Jesus in his work on the cross, mm. his sacrifice on the cross, redeemed the human race. He made it possible so that we can enter into heaven with him. But we're still in the process of collaborating with him to work out our salvation so that we can be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ so that we too can be worthy to be in heaven. And that is above all God working within us, but that means that we have to be open to allowing Christ to work within us. And I think that in looking at this story here, it's incredible to me because it talks about how at the very beginning of Lent, and these are actually still the readings we have, we have readings of the fall. We read from Romans chapter five. We read about Christ in his temptation after baptism in Matthew chapter four. And when he's tempted by the devil and when eventually he tells the devil that we are to worship God, you know, and he's really pushing back against the threefold temptation that the devil offers him. But what we learned is that at this first Sunday, the catechumens, those who are getting ready to be baptized, actually present themselves here. And it's almost like they have the opportunity to um, not just write their names down to be the candidates, not just to take off. You know, it used to be that the outer garment would come off and, you know, they'd have their basic clothing. And it was almost um, something that was almost humiliating for the church to have pity on that person, to remind the church that there is a battle over this person's soul, which is why their outer garment is off and they're in a clothing that uh, kind of almost shows a symbol of poorness and dependence. And that's a sign that there is this temptation and battle for their soul going on with Satan. Yeah, there is almost nothing richer in the church's liturgy than the symbolism, right? Again, something that is real and draws us into the story itself, into the mystery of the baptismal liturgy. You know, there's just so many images all the way through a, a baptism from the white garment being something that not only symbolizes and draws us into the fact that we are a, we've been washed clean. It is, we are a new creation, but that same baptismal garment is symbolically placed onto a casket at a funeral as mm -hmm. the funeral pall, so that our baptism is made complete when we die and we go in to meet our creator for our judgment. And then by his grace to be brought into eternal life. You know, the symbol of the baptismal candle, lighting it from the Paschal candle that is first lit during the Easter vigil at the resurrection. This flame that's burning in the middle of the night is presented to the godparents of a child who is being baptized. The chrism 
that is poured out upon the head of the newly baptized is this anointing as Christ was and as all the priests, prophets, and kings of the Old Testament were, but fulfilled in Christ. That happens to each and every one of us at the baptism, as Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit as it, at his own baptism. And so over and over again, it's this reminder that our baptism is not just an entrance into a building, not even just an entrance into a church community, a faith community. Um, yeah. <laughs> You, 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 you know, you know my, my feelings on, on that phrase right there. We won't go down yeah. those annoying yeah. phrases. Yeah. Yeah. Path. Well, I've got to say it because it has a lot to do with baptism is that um, a, a faith community can be really anything and anywhere. Um, but when we are gathered together to worship in the Eucharist, to worship in Christ, in the Eucharist, to worship the Father, we are so much more than a faith community. We are the church being made present in that space. And we're not just entering through the back door into the heavenly worship. Christ is bringing us through the front gates in the heavenly procession towards his sacrifice as the lamb that is slain, but lives again. And so to speak of ourselves merely as a faith community doesn't really get to the depths of what it means to be baptized into the death burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, where he brings our humanity with him into the, the heavenly tabernacle, the real tabernacle. And so all of this imagery and all of this language, even in the blessing of the holy water, the baptismal waters at the Easter vigil, pours us into the story of scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't just inform us but it, it, it transforms us and brings us into the story itself. This is exactly what we've been talking about the whole time. This battle over life versus death, a culture of life versus a culture of death in baptism. We're talking about dying to ourselves, which is why Satan, the accuser, accuses us. He battles for us, tries to prove the point that we can't escape from him. We are part of his dominion and how it's through baptism. We take off that outer garment. We're in the purity of white. It's like taking off the original sin of Adam. It is taking off that original sin, taking off those skimpy garments that they suddenly put on themselves. It's all the symbolism that we are dying to ourselves. We are dying and detaching from the realm of the demonic, from the realm of sin, and we are entering into the life of Christ. And so now we're called to go out by the grace of our baptism. I mean, you guys, this is why it's so important when we walk into that church and cross ourselves with the holy water, we are literally reclaiming ourselves for Christ as we mark ourselves with the symbol of the cross in the water, the redemptive water of Christ. And being reclaimed by Christ. That's the first sign of the cross in the baptismal liturgy is made on the child's forehead by his by the priest and then by the parents and godparents. It's, you know, it confuses people because we don't, we, we celebrate mass uh, baptisms within mass at St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. And so we don't start with the sign of the cross as we do almost every other kind of uh, Christian prayer, but rather the sign of the cross is made after a few questions. You know, you know, what do you name your child? What do you ask the church for your child baptism? And then I say, I claim this child for Christ by making the sign of the cross. And I invite the parents and godparents to do the same. And so while we don't, as the church made present here, we don't make the sign of the cross on ourselves, but it's almost as if we focus every one of our signs of the cross onto the forehead of that child so that that child might be claimed by Christ. And then all of our sorrows and all of our joys that we gather together when we begin our prayer in the sign of the cross is brought down into the life of that child. 
and that child becomes not just another member of our faith community, but becomes a part of the body of Christ that is made present when we gather for the Eucharist. But at that moment, I will never forget a couple years ago at a baptism of one of our my dear friend's children. As a little girl was being baptized, a little girl by the name of Gianna, actually, um, the priest after the baptism right away looks at the community and so boldly and emphatically says, this child is a saint. Mm. Now he looks at each of us with like this pure gaze and it's so true because it reminds me of the gaze of Christ that we read about in the New Testament and the Gospels with his piercing gaze he said now it is up to you to make sure that she remains a saint are we taking that responsibility on for those that we are responsible for even for the responsibility of ourselves to preserve the sanctifying grace within us and looking at the way that the baptisms are done now and how they used to be done is the the, the prominent role of exorcism prayers uh, as, as prayers of protection that we are entering into the battle with Christ, not by ourselves, but we are entering into the battle that Christ himself entered into the desert to uh, face the temptations of the devil so that he brought our humanity into the temptations, not so that we handle them by ourselves, but that we are victorious in him. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. That's radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 